Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. My name's Stephanie and I'm here again with my lovely co-host Michelle. Hi Stephanie. Um, and today we've got a special guest which is Dr Alice Moody. Now Alice is um, also a lecturer here in the Department of English at Macquarie University. Alice's specialties are modernism and contemporary literature. She's just finished up a really exciting project on hunger in modernism and contemporary literature and she's also working on an anthology of global modernism. And today she's going to talk to us about the CIA's rather strange role in mid-20th century literature. So hi, Alice. Hi. Um, so to get started, why don't you just tell me about your exciting project on the CIA and how on earth the CIA became involved? So the kind of, I guess the backstory of this is um, goes back to the 1940s. So... As you might know, before World War II, there were basically kind of three main ideological positions in Europe that were all struggling for prominence. One of them was communism, um, with, in the aftermath of, in 1917, Russia had a revolution, known <laughs> as the Russian Revolution, um, which installed a communist government. Um, on the other hand, you had, obviously, the kind of liberal capitalist democratic system that was at that time prevalent or emerging across Europe and in the US. And of course, this is also the period in which you see the rise of fascism. And so there was kind of a three-way ideological struggle going on in this period. And World War II, which obviously was lost by the Axis powers, who were primarily fascist powers or Nazi powers, um, ended up kind of producing a two-way struggle, which ultimately led to the Cold War from about the 1950s onwards between capitalism on the one hand kind of led by the US and communism on the other hand led by the USSR which is kind of what Russia became as it expanded into other Soviets um, and kind of took in other parts of Eastern Europe and Central Asia to form its kind of communist empire I suppose. And in that kind of aftermath in the 1940s um, the communists were actually a really important force globally throughout the parts of the world that weren't necessarily at that point committed to one side of this struggle or the other as it was still emerging in these early post-war years. And um, for various reasons, the communist kind of presence was really influential. Partly that was because um, in the pre-war period, so in the period between World War I and World War II, um, communism and socialism had a lot of currency with artists and intellectuals. A lot of them were really attracted to these ideas and found them very compelling. And there was a lot of work in this period, which we know as the modernist period, trying to think about how artistic um, innovation or art, art in general could be squared with or could be used in service of a communist kind of uh, worldview, I suppose. Um, that was kind of really amplified by the role that the communist parties in Europe served in the resistance during World War II, so the resistance to the Nazi occupation. So particularly in a country like France, um, you have this really kind of um, strong power of the French Communist Party in the years immediately after World War II because um, the French Communist Party had been kind of the leader in the French resistance and that gave them, after the fall of the Nazis, a really um, strong presence in the political debate there. Um, and that extended to the intellectuals. So you have in this period people like Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, really kind of trying to think in a very serious way about 
communism as being kind of a central component of their ideological and philosophical systems and you have the same thing happening among a lot of the writers and artists in this period. And so in the, 19, in the late 1940s after World War II, the US basically started to get really anxious that this enormous influence of intellectuals and artists, um, or communist in intellectuals and artists, were, meant that they were kind of effectively losing the propaganda war, that in a really kind of influential way, they just didn't have the power I suppose, to lure in intellectuals, to lure in artists. And they thought that that was a really problematic thing because it meant that there weren't, you know, people writing op-eds supporting the US and the capitalist system, that there weren't people with kind of cultural capital and the moral authority that comes with that being able to advocate for their position. They were losing the culture wars. They were losing the culture wars, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, and in this period, they as a result of that, they really started to kind of think hard about what it would mean for a kind of liberal democratic capitalist or at least anti-communist um, cultural form to emerge. And this took a whole range of different forms, um, but the CIA was really centrally involved in a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, there were a lot of the um, sort of founding members of the CIA who ended up in Ivy League universities actively recruiting, um, you know, sort of people like Peter Madison, who um, went on with Doc Hume to form the Paris Review, and really taking that stance, theoretically, um, sort of not political, but in actual fact, um, sort of perhaps more terrifyingly political than anyone contributing probably realised because it was that whole idea of art for art's sake um, sort of played out in, 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 this, in this rather sort of sinister um, way, which also um, saw some great writers um, supported um, because there was this influx of funds, um, which usually artists are desperate to get hold of and, and can't. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's exactly the kind of cultural formation that we're talking about here. Um, and it's really, it kind of really interestingly across all the different arts. Um, so it's kind of, I guess, has been really well documented in painting, um, in particular in this period, um, in areas that I'm really interested in as someone who works on modernism. Um, so abstract expressionism, which is the kind of painting that we associate with someone like Jackson Pollock or Mark Rothko, um, was starting to emerge in the same period and this is when the CAA first gets this idea that they're like, aha, this is what we can do this is how we can position ourselves um, is by thinking about how the kind of outgrowth of modernism which as you say embraced art for art's sake, which embraced um, ideas that culture and um, particularly artistic innovation is something that's free um, and individualist, that it's about kind of the artist, particularly something like abstract expressionism, you get the idea that it's kind of the artist's um, free inner self being expressed on canvas, that they're not constrained by, you know, the conventions of painting. They're not even constrained by, like, art looking like something. The best art mm -hmm. is apolitical, that yeah. sort of thing. Which yeah, and that it's really... individual as well, because obviously this is kind of opposing itself to the collectivist modes of um, communist art. So in this period as well... Um, the communist international starts to issue decrees that communist art, the official kind of form of communist art is social realism. That is a kind of very realist, very figurative art, art that depicts real things, basically. Um, and that depicts them in a way that kind of glorifies the proletariat, um, 
you know, really kind of serves the goals of a socialist revolution. So you can say that's in some ways kind of the opposite of this idea of art for art's sake or aesthetic autonomy, as we might call it. So the CIA was, was as you say, going into universities, as you, as you mentioned, Michelle, but what else was it doing? Was it funding things? Was it supporting different artists? Yeah, right. So it's, it's funding and supporting huge numbers of things. So the first one is in the, from the 1940s, you get the funding of these big um, exhibitions of abstract expressionism internationally, um, which really kind of starts that off. But what I've been looking at is an association called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, which, like the funding of the Paris Review, is about kind of in part supporting institutions, I guess, things like journals, mm. um, in an attempt to spread not so much an ideology, but more a kind of a mode of organising or understanding both art's relationship to politics and an ideal of a public sphere that's kind of free and liberated. Um, but the CCF was an organisation, it was founded in 1950, it was based in Paris, and it sponsored a whole range of journals um, right across the world. So um, journals in India, Africa, Australia, as well as you know, it started off initially primarily based in Western Europe um, in an attempt to kind of counter this prominence of communism among intellectuals right across this area. Um, it also sponsored lots of conferences and seminars that aimed to get writers from all over the world to come together and have conversations about art, about politics in quite a free and open way. This was very much kind of the, the ideology there was that we have no prescriptive ideology. You can think whatever you want. You can be an Australian conservative like James McCauley, who edited Quadrant, which was a CCF periodical, <laughs> or you can be a, like, African leftist but not quite communist like a lot of the contributors to Transition, and you're all welcome in our big tent. And so there not... wasn't censorship as such. Right, exactly. Um, and with the CCF, that's really important because the CCF was a covert CIA Undertaking. So it was funded by the CIA. There were CIA agents who were a part of the CCF organizing committee, but they were secret agents. They wow. were like, <laughs> the, and it was very important to its function that people didn't know that the CIA was behind this, basically, which meant that they couldn't then intervene in anything because that would have blown their cover. It sounds like something from Borat, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was very effective. Yeah. Um, unlike Borat. Unlike Borat, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very, very, um, very effective and very extraordinarily influential in the establishment of post-war literary and artistic culture, which is what I find so fascinating. Because it also became a way of legitimate, well, I guess, um, hiding from a public who may very well be uncomfortable with arts avant-gardeism you know the, the sort of thing that makes mum and dad and you know sort of small states small towns edgy and uncomfortable it was sort of a way of funneling money in by using the funds of the CIA like the, the, the money that they don't have to account for because it's going to the CIA and yet you're still appeasing you know sort of a very much I guess um, I, I guess the Tea Party 
the equivalent of the Tea Party today. Um, As in it's a way of providing government funding it's for a way things of providing that wouldn't have otherwise that been supported. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way of, um, you know, sort of without having to sort of sell the arts and, you know, huge amounts of money going into the arts, which would only exas aggravate, you know, a large proportion of the voting um, population um, by sort of channeling black funds. Um, but Joel yeah. Whitney, I think, in Finks, does a re sort of does an exploration of you know sort of the the, the impact that those secret because it's that covert um, sort of position that those CIA agents were were playing that sort of en it envelopes it all in, in in that sort of murky um, moral ground, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. And I mean, the funding thing is an interesting question, partly because a lot of the money that went into an organisation like the CCF wouldn't have really been part of any arts budget anyway because it was primarily outside the US. Mm -hmm. So there were a few CCF publications within the US, but it was really aimed at trying to create uh, this international network of writers. Um, and most of the activities that they did were outside the US. So they would have been separate from a regular arts budget anyway. But yeah, absolutely. I do think that um, the ambivalence about this is really interesting and really important, um, maybe particularly in the areas that I've been looking at, which is mostly in Africa, um, where the CCF is just extraordinarily important for the establishment of what we now understand to be African literature. Um, so in the aftermath of colonization um, and decolonization in this period, you see the emergence of just a few really extremely influential journals. So um, a journal called Black Orpheus, which is edited by Uli Bayar, who's based in um, Nigeria. A journal called Transition, edited um, at this point by Rajat Nyogi, who was based in Uganda. And these two journals basically kind of create the sort of conditions within which African literature in the post-war period really emerged and came to national and regional and then international prominence. So people like Christopher Ogigo, um, Wale Soyinka, Chinra Achebe are kind of big names of the kind of foundational moment of African literature in that decolonial period were all extremely closely associated with these journals. Um, the major conference which was held um, at Makere, um, which um, kind of sets the terms of debate that really dictate what happens in African literature. So debates about, for instance, whether you write in English or African languages, um, how you kind of conceive of yourself on a national or ethnic or pan-African kind of level. This kind of really influential conference was a CCF-funded conference, Transition and Black Orpheus, with CCF-funded journals. So it kind of, in a sense, African literature as we know it today was certainly not created by the CIA because they were so hands-off, but it was funded by it. And so, so there's a really interesting moral ambiguity there. So if you're a young African writer and you were submitting your work to Transition, yeah. did you know? No. Well, not until 1966, 1967, when this all became public. Right. So from 1950, when the CCF was set up, until 1966, it was absolutely not clear that the CIA was funding it. it the fact that the CCF was a little bit anti-communist was widely known, um, but the CIA involvement was completely secret. No one involved in the journals knew about it, and 
we suspect that probably not that many people even involved in the CCF's own kind of organising body knew that it was primarily getting its money from the CIA. So it was deeply covert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, there was um, one of the other African organisations that the CCF was involved in is called the Transcription Centre, which kind of did radio stuff and um, like interviews with African writers and that kind of thing. And there are interesting letters where they try and sell... Um, you know, particular programs that they've made to different stations, and some stations come back, I think one in Kenya comes back and says, look you're a propaganda front and we don't want anything to do with you, we know what the CCF is, and this is in like, I think the early 1960s, so there was a sense that there was a kind of awareness of its anti-communist involvement, but not of the CIA funding and so when that was uncovered in 1966 what happened? Um, it was it was pretty bad for the people involved, <laughs> as you might imagine. Um, so it was initially um, there was there was a kind of an investigation in the U.S. and it, the results of that were kind of published. They made front page news in the New York Times. So it was like a kind of simultaneous um, exposure of this internationally. Um, and within the things that I've looked at, so particularly in transition. This was a real problem for them because they had spent, they were quite a left publication, probably one of the most left that the CCF supported. Um, and they were also in Africa where, in the decolonial moment, where the US was often kind of strongly associated, not without reason, with Western Europe. And so with the power, with the colonial powers that were kind of being um, basically kicked out of Africa in the 1960s. So to get CIA funding was a really bad thing in <laughs> Uganda in 1966-1967 um, and it was a real it was a real problem so the editor went and did this big kind of mea culpa interview that was published in a range of different places including reprinted in transition itself basically saying I had no idea they had no control over anything I did nothing is um, this isn't a thing you know this wasn't um, either influential on editorial policy or something that any of us knew anything about. And it's really funny because you read this interview, I read this interview, and I thought, wow, this is a real kind of like disavowal and distancing of this magazine and its editorial board from the CCF. But then you look at the archives and the CCF people were writing to him being like, congratulations, that was the perfect interview, that was everything that we wanted you to say. Because really that idea of kind of CIA non-involvement, that even if it's a CIA-funded thing, it's still not going to attempt to dictate or censor or otherwise control content because we are the ideology of freedom, not like those dirty communists who will control, try and control everything that everyone says. So that's kind of the propaganda war. That's the terms on which this propaganda war are being fought. Yeah, that's so, yeah, there's a really interesting kind of thing going on there. Nyogi then did get arrested in 1968 by the Ugandan government and was like kind of off the back of these revelations. Um, was kept in prison for I think about a year and then when he was released obviously um, they moved transition out of Uganda um, and Nyogi didn't really resume editorship but passed over to Wale Sinka. Because obviously within Africa you know um, you have countries like Algeria who very uh, closely aligned with Russia in, in order to you know sort of gain weapons in, in, in order to, and in fact afterwards Russia provided tremendous support, funding, you know, etc, etc. So, because I'm, I'm thinking that, 
you, you know, just as that undercurrent to that, um, you know, we're supporting freedom of individual expression, you know, all of those sorts of things, there is always that implicit censorship that goes into um, any form of production where you just naturally align yourself according to, for example, um, you know, sort of countries that may have aligned themselves less with Russia or, you know, so I'm just wondering yeah. in, in, in those instances, um, you know, sort of countries that actively, um, you know, sort of read or, or actively define, define their post-colonial identity as, you know, sort of socialist or, you know, sort of even um, sort, of, uh, sort of communist allies, etc., um, would that have affected the, their chances of, of, you know, sort of um, funding journals, all that sort of thing? Yeah, so, I mean, the fact that um, Africa was such a major kind of site of the Cold War, so obviously um, the way that the Cold War operates um, is precisely around that sort of attempt to um, get effectively non-aligned um, countries on your side, basically. And Africa, because this is the period of decolonization is a really major site for that struggle. Um, and absolutely, yeah, all through Africa, the influence of the USSR is extremely important. A lot of countries, um, a lot of... Modelled um, their states on, yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on, you know, sort of Russian um, infrastructure, you know, et cetera, et cetera, housing, cities, design, everything. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So, like, I mean, during the kind of decolonial period, as you say, the USSR provided material support to a lot of... Um, kind of anti-colonial rebels. They also um, provided a kind of a really compelling theoretical analysis for a lot of people. So a lot of kind of anti-colonial thinkers were also heavily influenced by people like Marx and Lenin. So there's a kind of long tradition there. And that's exactly why the CIA wanted to be in Africa with the intellectuals in Africa as a kind of a counterweight to that enormous ongoing influence. Um, but also during this period, you see the emergence of kind of the third world as something that tries also to think of itself as non-aligned, so not kind of just picking sides with one or another. And that's another important ideology that's emerging kind of in this period. Um, and a lot of the intellectuals involved in CCF and other CIA-sponsored publications, particularly in this part of the world, actually, you know, attended both. USSR funded and CIA funded conferences um, that they were both they were kind of published in journals that were sponsored by but so there was a lot of kind of movement between those two positions in this place um, precisely because of this ideology that you're talking about right of art being a sort of something that isn't bound to the state which on the one hand the US is trying to co-opt for its own but also weakens its ability to co-opt these intellectuals and artists into one side or another of this struggle. And very few kind of publicly and explicitly and full-throatedly um, embraced either side, really, um, of the people who went on to become this kind of little nexus in African literature. Obviously, there were extremely important communist intellectuals right up until the fall of the USSR, and conversely, some important capitalist ones as well. But what do you think the reach um, in terms of looking at uh, so sort of if, 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 if we look at the, the sort of arena that's at play today and the voices that because I mean you, you pointed and you named some of um, you know sort of Africa's um, most uh, sort of revered authors etc um, so, so what do you think the reach of, of that program has been when, when we look at the, the voices that are heard 
um, sort of primarily the kinds of voices that are heard uh, today? I mean, yeah, it's completely enormous in terms of what we think about African literature, but it's also difficult to uh, be definitive about causality, I think. I really wouldn't want to say that, you know, the CIA invented African literature or anything like <laughs> no, that, obviously. No. So one of the things that was going on in this period was that the CIA was quite good at identifying, um, or, or like these, not so much the CIA, but these journals were quite important kind of incubatory force um, sites for a lot of exploration and a lot of sort of investigation into what Afri art in Africa, what literature in Africa might be. And so they really attracted a lot of these people who would go on to become extremely influential. Whether they would have gone on to become extremely influential without these particular venues is, is a kind of impossible to say. But I mean, my suspicion is they probably would have, right? That there was also, that in some ways what the CIA's, um, what the CCF anyway did was kind of pour money into um, something that was, that kind of needed to happen in any case in this time and place, which was an attempt to think about what in the aftermath of colonization literature is going to look like in Africa. Um, what is the role of culture? What is the role of the intellectual in contexts where you're kind of trying to constitute in effect a people because obviously in a lot of these African countries the nations that come out of the decolonial period don't match up in any clear way with pre-colonial political arrangements so there's a kind of this is a period of enormous shift in effect and some in some ways the kind of cultural effects of that are just going to happen anyway um, what the CCF did was really fund that I guess there's a sort of I, I'm sort of thinking through that uh, that sort of um, idea that there's a, a particular notion of the artist that mm. is is being constructed, isn't it? And so, whereas there's no doubt those voices were, you know, sort of there, they were present, you know, sort of they they were ready for um, sort of propelling um, for propulsion into a sort of a, a larger arena. Um, you're always sort of aware of the fact that there is this this sort of plucking notion, and and there is this sort of construction of um, you know sort of an, a model of an artist, a model of art along that line of you know sort of individual expressionism as a value, isn't it? You know, um, which is being sort of promoted in 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 that um, in that very um, subversive way, uh, you know, because you're always trying to challenge what it is that you take for granted, aren't you? And that idea of the artist and what the artist is and what sort of writing is, because, you know, in some sense, um, you look at Walsh well, Sersenka uh, and, um, you know, a Nobel Prize winner, laureate, and all of those sorts of things, and, and you, you sort of look at the sort of writing and then you look at the sort of the model of the, of, of the artist and um yeah i mean it's just it's it's the most fascinating thing to be looking at because i i'm i'm very much sort of just wondering the degree to which there is this sort of modeling that has actually shaped um sort of uh, the, the literature along that notion of um you know sort of the freedom yeah um, so know, model i mean again it's a, it's tricky to kind of establish causality because in some ways i think what's happening here and kind of where my interest in this project initially comes from or this area initially comes from is that i think some of what's going on is a kind of piggybacking on pre-world war ii modernist ideas so an attempt to sort of 
um, take ideas about, you know, art for art's sake, ideas about the individual artist being having a particular kind of important role to play in innovation and in kind of reconfiguring or sometimes even resisting tradition. Um, and those ideas pr long predate CIA involvement yeah. in it. So what I think happens in the post-war period is that kind of this set of kind of ideas about art and the artist suddenly start to seem politically useful or available to a, a kind of a rereading through a liberal political lens. Um, and so in some ways, I mean, again, I just, I don't want to, I think what's really interesting here is the way in which a set of ideas gets redeployed in a certain context for certain ends, rather than kind of over-crediting the CIA with the creation of, you know... Oh, no. So, so, I know that's not what you're trying to do, but yeah, I think that's it's, it's an important distinction to make because, <laughs> you know, there's a risk with this kind of work that, you know, you kind of become really sort of conspiracy theory-centric and, like, the CIA is responsible for everything that we know as culture today. Um, the CIA is not uh, sponsoring <laughs> from the Lighthouse, yeah. so we all know. <laughs> um, but I think it's fascinating because it gives us models for thinking through what goes on today, for example, yeah. and, and, you know, sort of the way in which sort of funding models, etc., actually do have a, a role to play in, in the type of literature, the type of art, etc., that's, that's getting produced. And, and so I think that's where it's incredibly fascinating um, work because we're constantly sort of remodelling thinking and dealing with sort of changing paradigms for how, you know, sort of artists support themselves, for how artists sort of generate, um, you know, sort of income audience sustainability um, and all of those things um, and also just in, in that sort of fascinating sort of nuanced moment where you're sort of trying to work out um, you know is not is hands off actually hands on sort of thing well what fascinates me about this whole thing is that if the CIA is, is right at the centre of like the, the cultural wars I suppose or the propaganda wars of, of the post-war period it just points to a real kind of acknowledgement behind the scenes that you don't often see kind of you know, expressed as such that literature and the arts are vitally important politically yeah, and threatening, and, and, threatening and, and potentially threatening, threatening and, and, and nation building in all sorts of ways. And we don't often see, you know, politicians stand up and go, well, we think that literature and the arts are so important because of X, Y, and Z. But it seems that that's understood kind of behind the scenes. And it's a real testament to the power of literature, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess... I think there's something really interesting with that. And there's also really, um, just a really, to go back to what you were saying before, there's a really interesting kind of um, set of debates in this time about precisely state funding of the arts um, on exactly these sorts of terms. Because in the same way that now we have these kinds of debates, like in Australia, about, say, the independence of the Australia Council, as opposed to kind of other ways of funding arts, which we've seen debates about in recent years, um, that are much more directive and kind of the government clearly picks the people that they think are important, you know, and the money goes to them. Um, in contrast to this model where the Australia Council has a degree of autonomy and is able to make these sorts of distinctions on the grounds of art for art's sake. Um, and it's so interesting to think about, as you say, how that kind of, um, what feels to us just a kind of, you know, really contemporary political skirmish has this very long history that turns in part around, um, so one of the anxieties that the CCF is interested in working out or some of its publications are, is 
what the role of the state should be in the arts and whether um, state funding of the arts is a kind of creeping totalitarianism or whether there's a kind of an ability for them to maintain a degree of autonomy or independence while still getting money from state organs. Um, the CCF sponsors a big conference in I think about 1960 in Helsinki um, or somewhere or Copenhagen um, uh, that's about exactly the writer and the welfare state, how you think about that kind of complicated relationship um, because this is of course also the period where that and the kind of state funding of the arts is part of the unfolding of the welfare state in this period across large parts of the world, um, large parts of the capitalist world. So that is kind of a really interesting set of debates to think about in light of the fact that this is all state-funded arts, right? Yeah. Like that this is all CIA-funded and so that's where the money is coming from. So they're having conversations about state-funded art while potentially unknowingly being state-funded art. Right, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's layers of complexity there, aren't there? I was wondering if you could talk about um, what was happening in Australia with all of this. Um, yeah, so I haven't done the research entirely into this part yet, as my disclaimer, but um, Australia was considered to be quite an important um, site for these struggles um, in the same way and for not dissimilar reasons to why other kinds of... Um, you know, at this time, minor or emerging powers across um, places like Africa and India, where it's kind of an important venue for this struggle. Also, in this period, Australia is really quite conservative. It, there isn't, unlike other parts of the world, much risk that it's going to become communist. Um, <laughs> although there was a, you know, an yeah. important Australian Communist mm -hmm. Party. Um, and so, what's, I mean, what the, C the CCF's major contribution in Australia was. Um, they set up their own little kind of Australian-based Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, and they funded, most importantly, Quadrant, um, which, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, continues to this day as perhaps Australia's kind of most influential and important conservative um, journal periodical that, um, in the tradition of CCF publications, combines um, political, cultural and then artistic kinds of um, writing of various sorts, ranging from the, you know, very political through to, like, columns. Yeah. Um, and everything in between. And that was edited by a guy called James McCauley, who is a kind of relatively well-known Australian poet from the middle of the 20th century, um, whose greatest claim to fame may be that he's one of the two people who were involved in producing the Mally hoax, um, where these poets who didn't like experimental surrealist Australian poetry in the 1940s invented this poet and um, led to the ultimate demise of Australia's fledgling modernist journal, The Angry Penguins. Um, <laughs> so in that context, you know, the CCF plays quite a different role in the development of Australian modernism, um, a much more conservative role, one that's much less interested in um, aesthetic, I guess, experimentation than, say, the CCF's activities in Africa, which are much more closely associated with African modernism. But yeah, I mean, its legacy in Australia is clearly very influential. It produced a journal that continues to this day. Um, and it organised a lot of um, conferences and stuff that were based all over the world and some in Sydney. Um, it's another thing that the CCF did with all these journals that it produced. Um, as part of this 
vision that it had of kind of creating this international network and international public sphere of writers is often they would um, kind of be sort of middlemen offering uh, articles that they thought were interesting that appeared in one publication that they ran to another publication. So that way you get like a, a syndication kind of, thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, and you get this kind of circulation as a result of that. One of the more hilarious and disturbing things that gets syndicated is James McCauley um, gave a speech at a CCF-sponsored conference in Sydney, or it might have been a kind of a summary of the conference, um, at which he makes the fascinating argument that the Australian concept of mateship is analogous to the African concept of negritude, <laughs> which... Um, I don't know what to say to that. may or may not know what negritude is. It's a very influential um, concept that emerged in the 1930s as a way of kind of um, producing an affirmative black identity. And it was a really influential (laughs) idea that was um, central to constructing both a notion of the African diaspora, a notion of pan-Africanism, and also to help kind of provide some of the um, initial ideological and... Um, political impetus that helped with decolonization, particularly on a cultural front. Um, and it was very influential in Africa in the 1960s when this was written. Um, so it's, an, it's a completely it's extraordinary why some of his best poetry idea. was actually written as Ern Malley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> which, was, which did end up on, on poetry courses taught by John Ashbery. Yeah, it's in some, some of the anthologies of Australian literature have the Ern Malley poems in them, and they are frankly, yeah, a damn sight which, better than James Colley's own again, poetry. Then it becomes really interesting in terms of that idea of a particular notion of what an artist is. Because obviously, according to the freedom of, you know, sort of cultural expression, artistic expression, you cannot be uh, a sort of a hybrid identity pulled out of, you know, sort of different um, sort of textbooks and still be an artist, which is quite, um, you know, sort of an interesting sort of idea to to consider in terms of that idea of uh, individual as being the... um, you know, sort of the progenitor of art, um, where the Ermali hoax is kind of like this, well, these poems have taken on their own life. Would they have taken on their own life with a, a sort of CIA-funded, you know, <laughs> sort of journal saying, yeah, sure, you know, three people, you know, sort of two people playing a hoax, that's poetry, you know? Yeah. Um, just yeah. sort of a sort of a question mark. Would, would, would CIA funding allow for um, that poetry to become poetry? It's I mean, it, it completely <laughs> would, I think. And that's kind of, that's the genius of this scheme is that, yeah, it would. Sure, whatever, publish anything. Anything's poetry. You say it's poetry, it's poetry. I mean, that's kind of, that's what's so interesting and so bastardly clever about this scheme is that it really doesn't uh, make clear claims at all. It doesn't require you to toe any particular line. What it requires is a space in what the production of a space in which all those lines can be argued. So it would be completely unexceptional to either produce the O'Malley poets or to have people writing in a CCF-sponsored journal that the O'Malley poems are one of the greatest works of you know, Australian literature. That would not be a problem at all because the point was precisely that this is the space in which you can say anything, and that is what the propaganda and is. it co-ops anything doesn't it because on some level in terms of having received funding in terms of having appeared in a publication in terms of you know spoken at a conference in some sense 
there is as much as you might want to deny it or, or you know, sort of um, present yourself as, as a sort of antithesis to, 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 to sort of CIA funding or the CCS. Uh, in actual fact, you, you are um, on on some level complicit. It's insidious. Um, it's, it? a, it's a fealty, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? There's a form of fealty where any form of art then becomes co-opted to this this um, sort of organisation, uh, which is you know, sort of that that free that free market um, individual. Especially it? since, as you said, Alice, many of the the writers who are submitting to these to these journals and going to these conferences weren't aware, and so I wonder what they thought when. This was all uncovered, and you know that I'm sure there were varying degrees. As you say, the editors may have had a slightly more knowledge of this than. Say, I mean, no, a, I don't think Niyogi didn't definitely. And um, the other, the editor of Black Obvious was Uli Bayer, who also. I mean, we don't think that even at the editorial level they knew. So this at was a level above CCF yeah. um, level. So the kind of the, the central organization based in Paris, probably some of those people knew. Right. So um, it went up even higher than the editorial level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's kind of, again, that's what's so genius about it is you have these people being like, you know, effectively, as they understood it, accepting something like a kind of um, philanthropic sort of sponsorship. Um, and in fact, the CCF, after it became exposed that all the money was coming from the CIA, was reconstituted as the IACF, the International Association of Cultural Freedom. Totally different thing. <laughs> um, Change an acronym, it's all, all of different. Its, well, all of its funding, it kind of was slightly restructured and it got funding after that from the Ford Foundation. So it kind of became or tried to rebrand itself as what probably most of its, um, you know, beneficiaries had assumed or at least hoped. <laughs> it had been initially um, in that it was a kind of not entirely unideological project but one in which one's only divorced from the state. The I'm US. just imagining the Americans like instead of being about you know Russian spies you know or, and all of this kind of drama that they get into actually just publishing a literary magazine it seems really odd. <laughs> I know that the, yeah. the, the Americans are about Russians and this is about the CIA but it just seems odd that there's sort of international espionage which is bound up in literary journals. It seems like an odd marriage. Yeah, and there was at least, you know, at least one CIA operative whose job was to run the CCF or partly to run the CCF. You know, that's a fascinating job for a spy. But it's also com competition, isn't it? Because, I mean, at that stage, uh, you know, sort of the Eastern Bloc, they were performing incredible symphonies, incredible musicians, you know, like they were really um, sort of people were I, I mean people were traveling into the Eastern Bloc to hear people play and listen to music and, and so there is also that sort of idea well you know you can't, we can't you, you know you can't, you can't let that happen yeah <laughs> it's yeah. like the Olympics and, isn't and it you've got to win the Olympics you've got to win them. exporting those people as well right so they would pay for these big kind of as early as the 40s they would be paying for these kind of you know glory tours of like here are our amazing musicians here Just are our amazing yeah. dancers yeah. Like, look at them and marvel at the the brilliance of art that can be can be produced in a worker state. Mm. Um, and yeah, absolutely. So this is the kind of the counterpoint. And again, the selling point is precisely meant to be that the CIA isn't involved. That this is you know in a truly free state, um, just producing exceptional artists. Yeah, exactly. we just did it by accident because we're so great. Yeah, yeah or that like you know non-state-funded art, art that is free to express itself howsoever it chooses is where artistic brilliance really comes from. Not so, the control yeah, kind of exactly. state Yeah, exactly. The USSR art, yeah. is a statist art and therefore 
necessarily limited. And I guess one of the, some of the reasons why they probably did remain sort of covert in doing this is because a lot of artists would have probably refused to, to um, have anything to do with them if they'd known. Yeah, and they um, got an incredible all-star lineup of almost anyone you've ever heard of in this period in many parts of the world was in some way associated with something that the CCF ran, whether they published in a CCF journal, um, whether they... So, you know, there were also a lot of journals in Western Europe, like um, Encounter out of the UK, a magazine called Preuve in France, which are really influential, all through, you know, that part of the world, plus all these conferences. So, you know, the Writer and the Welfare State Conference has people like... Um, Whichever of the emissaries was around at that point, <laughs> Martin or Kingsley. Um, so, you know, these kinds of, all these people were, these really famous, famous people were being involved and invited. Um, and there's a really interesting, so not specifically related to the CIA funding, but um, in the early, so after 1968, in, so somewhere between 1969 and the early 70s, they try and organize a conference about African-American writing in the U.S. Um, and it's a complete failure. They can't get anyone on board because by this point, everything shifted so much that having, you know, a nice white um, woman who was working in a university as the coordinator of a kind of a black writing conference was completely politically unacceptable by that point in the civil rights movement. And so there was this kind of uproar and no one wanted to be a part of it. And even just that kind of um, shift shows you how much that sort of buy-in by artists is really crucial. Like, that's the that's the engine by which all of this operates. So, yeah, absolutely, the CIA funding thing was a cat catastrophe. And, in fact, once it becomes revealed, even with their, you know, stealth rebranding <laughs> and even with their, like, um, very, you know, very much significant change in funding it's basically the beginning of the end, 1967, once the IACF takes over from the CCF or the CCF becomes the IACF. Um, from then on, everything just starts folding. Um, there's less money available, but also a lot of the journals that are associated with it, when it comes out that they were associated with it, can't kind of survive that degree of public opprobrium. Um, and you can kind of just watch up until that point. It's really going from strength to strength. It's expanding. The people involved getting more and more. After that point, everything just starts folding. But at its height, there must have been millions of dollars being put into this yeah. to have that kind of global reach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And these conferences are, I mean, the, the money involved in it, I don't know the exact figures, but it must be extraordinary. Like the conferences have dozens of participants that have everything fully paid for, like, flights, accommodation, everything. Oh um, the archives are amazing because of this, because they recorded everything and then transcribed everything. So you get this thing that you never get with conferences, <laughs> right? Like maybe at best these days you'll get like, the, you can compile all the conference papers that were given. It this is has, highly revised versions of. <laughs> this has like... These archives have, for many of the conferences, full transcriptions of, like, all of the petty debates that happen in the sessions afterwards and such. Were there any that just spring to mind that you'd love to sort of share with us? Um, nothing particularly kind of hilarious. I, mean, I guess what has really just struck me is just the amount of detail that you get into. So you get a real sense of, um, I 
guess what the kind of the political formations are or the, the kind of personal factions that develop but you also get a sense of um, again to kind of go back to some of these you know African writer conferences and this kind of thing where um, the debates that come out of that are the important thing because they set the groundwork for absolutely everything that follows and to be able to have access in many cases to those very debates as they're unfolding is absolutely fascinating really kind of um, extraordinary there's also just like a lot of you know like some of them they'll be like you know oops we forgot to put the tape in right <laughs> <laughs> nothing from this day is fully recorded but yeah the like even technological mishaps aside just the amount of information that you get access to is I don't know if um, you've ever done archival work but it's normally just this kind of constant experience of gaps you're always aware of what you don't fully have access to the CCF archives you're just aware of just like you have everything and to in order to have everything you have enormous resources behind it right like someone sitting there mm -hmm. transcribing eight days of conference banter unimaginable it's it? crazy like the work on the 18th yeah. century so having anything that's not a badly <laughs> written letter is amazing to me so. yeah. <laughs> right I mean even like I work on the 20th and 21st century so I have normally access to quite a lot of stuff but um, most of the work that I've done archivally has been with individual author archives and there it's you know what did the author keep when they moved between three different countries 10 times in 12 years? Well, like, really a completely random and haphazard selection of things yeah. is almost always the answer. Whereas when you're working with this kind of, like, very well-funded government-sponsored um, archive, you just have, you know, all the correspondence, all the reports, all the, like people bickering over whether their hotel room is like the exactly the hotel room that they wanted or deserve <laughs> or like just absolutely everything is recorded all the accounts um yeah so we have something to thank our glorious leaders for <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean again that sort of the kind of the ambivalence of this kind of project is exactly what i'm interested in. not just that we know so much about it in terms of like what's preserved archivally but also just again what i can't get over is how significant and wide-reaching this organization was how much it swept up more or less like Lisa I said everyone that you've ever heard of in this yeah. period into this network yeah I think that's all we have time for today thank you Alice that was absolutely fascinating and I'm hoping that the exposure of this in the 60s means that we will not have a CIA file opened on any of us here <laughs> disappointed if there wasn't one. Yeah, Good. Michelle and I were hoping that we would get in trouble with the CIA after this podcast, but apparently that doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> I think this stuff is pretty okay. <laughs> pretty blown open by now. Sadly, Michelle and I's dreams will have to wait for another day. Um, thanks again to, to Alice, and thank you to Michelle, as usual, and we will see you again very soon. Bye.